This is Soundtrack, a music podcast about the music that impacts our lives. Every episode is a conversation of how music has shaped and influenced one's life, because music is the soundtrack to everyone's story. Soundtrack is hosted by Kyle Lichty. Hey everyone, I'm here with Nate Ernsberger. You just put your radio voice on. That's funny. (laughs) How's it going? It's going great. (laughs) Yeah, it's going great now they get to laugh at you switching from I'm Kyle talking about wrestling coach voice to I'm Kyle hosting a podcast voice. That cracked me up a little. It's okay. Yeah, so we've known each other since 2011. I don't know if you... Okay. Because that's when I moved here. Yeah. And yep. I remember and you guys were living on the the Lincoln House. Yeah, yep. and I think specifically it was coming to your. It would have been Labor Day. Like yeah, roast, right around right? the time our, our pig roast, yeah. pig roast and pie fest that we've been doing because we've been living in this house since two thousand five. And one of the things we decided we wanted to do when we moved into a neighborhood was we wanted to be intentional about being neighbors yeah. in our neighborhood. And that means two things. It means food and it means music. And so we started hosting just like backyard barbecue along with a live musician there performing for our neighbors. And that led into, like we did that for a couple of years and and realized that we kind of weren't getting the turnout that we really wanted. Okay. And then I was like, wait a second. You know, people aren't showing up for burgers or they aren't showing up for like roasted chicken but I bet if I roast a pig in my backyard, I can get a lot of people to show up. And that's exactly what happened. I, I announced I was doing a free neighborhood pig roast and that people could bring money to tip the musicians. And we had like 120 people in the rain. Yeah. And that just kind of launched yeah. what we do on an annual basis now, except for the last couple of years with right. COVID and all. But yeah. it'll happen again. Yeah. So you're originally from up north in the UP. Yeah. Scandia? Scandia is Marquette County, 20 miles south of Marquette. At the time that I grew up, K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base was operational. Okay. And that's a base that closed down in 1995. So my entire childhood was actually influenced by the fact that there was a much more robust economy in Marquette County because of this base that had 15,000 service members at it. Right. And families. Well, and I feel like... From my understanding of, of geography, I mean, you had a, a mining industry, a timber industry that have mm-hmm. are completely, you know, the mining industry. No, mining industry is still there. Like, oh. Yeah, and there's still some timber pulp, you know, that happens around the UP. But Market County itself, it's still very mining heavy, just based on history. It's a regional medical center, and then Northern Michigan University is there. Yeah, and that's you know, had between eight and 15,000 students. They lost a significant student population when the Air Force Base went away because one of their processes of having students was trying to keep students of those family members and service members who wanted to get a degree, they could get degrees. So NMU's population definitely dropped mid-90s, late-90s when the base went away, but they've continued to be a stable job provider in Marquette. Yeah. And then as the internet economy has changed things, I mean, there are, there are some significant companies that can still manage to help people make a decent living up there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Engineering firms and that kind of thing. 
Well, I'm sure Michigan Tech helps with that in some ways. Yeah, so, yeah, Tech being, you know, a mechanical school, a, a tech school, cranking out, you know, engineers, whenever you've got something like that, it makes sense to align with companies in the area and to help boost companies in the area to try and keep jobs there. Yeah. So, but, I mean, the UP is a great place to grow up if if you're not dirt poor. Yeah. What was it like to live up there? Well, we were dirt poor. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I grew up on food stamps, you know, with a very loving family. And my mom is an absolute you know, hero of a woman. I've got six brothers and sisters. We lived out in the woods, you know, on a hobby farm off the grid Yeah. for most of my childhood. My mom actually, she went back to school and got her nursing degree at Northern in her early 40s mid 90s or early 90s mid 90s but i grew up out in the woods riding my bike playing baseball here's the cool thing about growing up next to an air force base or probably any military base in the 80s and especially in michigan michigan with a 10 cent can return policy and a lot of snow meant that if you would ride your bike up to the gate of the air force base as the snow was starting to melt, you would see layer after layer after layer of pop and beer cans. Because if you're if you're out for a drive in the middle of winter and you have to get back into the base, you chuck your beer bottle out the window before you hit the gate. So the mile or half mile leading up to the gate, like those ditches were full of cans in the spring. And so as a fifth, sixth, seventh grader, I could make 60 or 80 bucks you know, every spring wow. as the snow melted. So that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, new Coke and crystal Pepsi were coming out around that yeah. time. And so you could turn a bunch of cans and ride down to the, to Welch's general store and pick up a, a new Coke or a crystal Pepsi and a bean burrito. And you were set. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Still, that's 15 cans. Yeah. Like, that's a that's some that's some cash on the handlebars. Yeah. What's your first musical memory when you were a kid? Yeah, so I grew up in the UP, but I had a couple years living south of Lansing in a little town called Horton. And that's when I was really little. So... You don't remember much. I actually do. I've got a, a really vivid memory of when I was two, three, four. Okay. My first actual memory, when I was less than a year old, falling down the stairs in my parents' house. <laughs> but I've got a really vivid memory of like one, two, three. And my first musical memory is actually in Ypsilanti, Michigan, at a place called the Gospel Barn. And it was a place that mainly had like Southern gospel vocal bands and stuff. And I remember being there. I was two or three and as best as I can remember, it was a band called the Kingsmen, but it was, it was Southern gospel. And what I remember most is the vocal harmonies, but also the fact that I had a bag of peanut M&Ms and that a grasshopper jumped down my shirt. And that, that is my distinctive first musical memory. So. Was there something that your parents wanted to go see? At this uh, gospel barn? This was something we did more than once. It was go to the gospel barn. And it was, you know, it was a Friday night, Saturday night. It was live music. 
and it was all Southern gospel kind of stuff. I don't know if we went like with a group of people from our church or if this was just something they regularly did. I remember going more than once okay. and it was a tent, like, you know, it was a tent with a little stage in it. And I just remember those couple distinctive things, but, but I remember the vocal music and, and I've tried to like go back and figure out like what song was it that was sticking with me. But I do remember the gospel barn. As far as I know, it's still there. Oh, dang. I'm sure it's a a different because Ypsilanti is so much now. Yeah, but you'd be surprised. Southern gospel is still a really active genre. And if you, any weekend in the summer, drive, you know, the back roads of anywhere from Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, into the South. If you drive the back roads, you'll find those little country churches that have Southern gospel groups coming in, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning. And it's, you know, it's four guys in suits and ties. One of them sings real low. Yeah. That's awesome. One of them sings real low. I can't, (laughs) can't quite get there, but yeah. You also have this beginning of what you really appreciated in music with Keith Green. And that was through your parents again, having music played throughout in all sorts of different situations. Yeah. If I think about the specific songs that are kind of like highlights in my life, at least the specific musicians, the reason I picked this first song by Keith Green is because in the house I grew up in, it was a a conservative upbringing. There was music we weren't allowed to listen to. And then the music we were allowed to listen to was all stuff that was coming out of church setting. And the rock star of that era, especially in my dad's mind, was this guy named Keith Green. And if you dig into the story of this guy, Keith Green, he was kind of a child prodigy piano player. If you if you just listen to it, you're like, oh, that kind of, that's kind of Elton Johnny. He's a phenomenal piano player. Mm. And there's a ton of music from that era of my life when I'm four, five, six years old. We listen to Keith Green nonstop. And if I listen to that stuff now, you know how music, it just sticks in your memories in a certain way. It triggers all sorts of memories. But any, and I mean any Keith Green song, I listen to it. My brain knows every guitar lick. It knows where every drum hit is. It knows where every piano groove is yeah but this particular song like when i think keith green this is the the song that comes to mind because it just starts so strong it's so powerful of a lick and a groove and it's just like piano in in your face and then there's this little drum fill that kicks in and so it's like, it's already strong. It's already making And then this drum lick, this drum fill just comes in and it just, it like expands and opens up and comes alive. And I was listening to this stuff when I was four and five years old. But the reason it's so influential is because that was my primary soundtrack for a couple of years yeah. at that point. Everything by that guy. In fact, I remember the day, or at least the week that Keith Green died. It was 1982. And I remember my dad finally hearing the news and just crying. It was like, you know, it was the same era of 
Hendrix and Joplin and those kind of people dying. Right. But in the world of music we listen to, this was a, a major death of somebody who was 28 years old, died in a plane crash. I remember my dad just being devastated. devastated. Yeah. There might be listeners who aren't familiar with Keith Green. Yeah. And I, I'm even unfamiliar in some aspects too. Yeah. But I, I feel like from what I, what I know, he reminds me kind of like a Rich Mullins uh -huh. in some pre, aspects. Pre-Rich pre, Mullins. Pre-Rich. Mm -hmm. And, but like, <clears throat> what was so special about him? Besides like the musical, like parts that you talked about yeah. him, of him being a prodigy. Yeah. Well, that that's really what it was. Like he was a musical prodigy when he was 12 and 13. And record labels, when he was that young, were looking at him to be the next big thing. And it's been a while since I've gone back and like read his story. But there were some, you know, major shifts and moments in his life where he decided, hey, I'm not going to go be this rock star. I'm going to do this all in the religious world. I'm going to do this. He was, you know, it was the era of what people would call Jesus music. Right. And he was part of this, hey, let's go start our own commune and like, let's all live in community together. And there were really positive things about the intention of a lot of that at the same time that there were like crazy cults, you know, yes. going off and yeah. doing stuff. He and his family, you know, kind of had a commune in Texas, Waco, Texas. But because he was such a phenomenal musician, what went along with it all for him was this real visibility as this incredibly creative and if you go and you listen to his music it's incredibly fresh if you listen to his first two three albums it stands the test of time oh yeah you give it a fresh listen and if you've never heard it before you'll be like who is this person this is phenomenal it's wildly creative he had great players coming in he was collaborating with bob dylan on some stuff at that time he was really well respected as a musician and had great production budgets and was touring and yeah. and all of it. Interesting. Around this time, you get your first cassette tape, and it's Petra. Well, or... yeah, yeah, you got to fast forward a little bit. Petra would be the first tape that I bought with my own money. Okay. Christmas, nineteen eighty four. You know, up until that point, it was I was listening to, you know, Keith Green and whatever else was around the house, what was on the radio, and. You know, I think if you talk about, you know, the songs that are the highlight of your life, you could come at it from a lot of different angles. I could talk about everything I was hearing on the bus and how badly I wanted to be Michael Jackson, you know, <laughs> as a first grader. And I definitely learned to play Beat It on some buckets with a pair of busted, you know, pitchfork handles. Yeah. But the first tape I bought is a huge moment for me because it's like, when I begin to make my own musical decisions. Right. Christmas 1984, I uh, went to the Shopco in Marquette, and I can still see that tape in my hands. I can still smell it uh, when I peeled open that cellophane and cracked open that cassette. You can still hear the squeak of the cassette opening. And it was a tape called Beat the System, and it was all like, this is a band that was that was actually produced by the same guys who produced the Kansas music and stuff. In fact, the Elefantes are in Kansas and then also produced this band Petra. And the lead singer, 
you could go way deep on all this stuff. But this particular album and this particular song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, this was one of my first musical choices that I got to own. Interesting thing. Yeah. I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, yeah. There we go. Petra went to the same church that I went to. Bob Hartman. They started in Fort Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. I know those guys. Some of them. Yeah. I've interacted with some of them, even. Yeah. And early 80s, they were huge. They were huge. So, I mean, here's this, you know, rock band. Yeah. Coming from this conservative church that I know. Yeah. That I grew up in, a part of. Yep. Why were they so huge? Why? What was so appealing to them? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. About them. To, to dig into that, I'll actually, if, you know, for those of you who are listening to this, a much better explainer for what people would call the contemporary Christian music phenomenon, or before that, what would have been called Jesus music. There's actually a great, a great documentary out right now called The Jesus Music. So look up The Jesus Music documentary. But a really good person to dig into and follow is a guy named John Thompson, and he has a podcast called True Tunes, and he has he's a an excellent music historian on this whole. I won't call it a genre. I'll argue with my kids when they try and call Christian music a genre, and I'll also say that I think it's a horrible label because music should never be labeled with a religion it's affiliated to. Like you don't use the word Christian except to refer to a person because the word Christian means little Christ. So you use that to apply to a person, but to apply it to any sort of product is a departure that just doesn't make sense. But <laughs> we digress. Yeah, The music that was being created by people in the church at that time, it was reactionary. And it was also trying to help people engage with lyrics they liked that spoke to them and their reality and their beliefs while also being creative as music in that era was creative. But what was happening was that you had people who were being told, well, when you have this certain uh, set of beliefs, you have to be separate from everything that's going on in the broader culture at large. So you have to create kind of your own subset of music and products that are just for you. That's way oversimplifying it. But you end up with these really great musicians who are creating music specifically to try to bring a message to people based on musical preference, but also creating music for people who were going to church three times a week and wanted something to listen to that they enjoyed you know, from more than one angle. Yeah. Content that they liked, but also the music, the music, the sound, the, the sound. Yeah. yeah. And that's where Petra comes from. Yeah. I mean, like I growing up. Yeah. You know, Petra, 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 Petra. And yeah. I'm like, who, who? And like, yeah, these old guys, because yeah. by this point it was like the night, late nineties, yeah. early aughts. Yeah. So that I'm like, yeah, but no, I was listening to them were, in the early eighties. Yeah. Seventies even. Oh yeah. They were, huge. there's, and it, again, if you go back and listen to their stuff, like if, if this particular song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, is an entree point to listen to some of the other stuff, you'll just be fascinated by how much they put out and how, again, how creative it was. 
this particular song is interesting because it's actually a cover tune from a band who put this song out in the early 70s. So this song actually predates my birth. But this song was from a British band called Argent. They wrote this song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. And then Petra was the first major label band to cover them. And then Kiss actually covered this song for the soundtrack of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But like, again, if you listen to it as a song, it's just a great song. It's got a great hook. It's got a great, great groove. Yeah. But for me, it was it was more about me getting to make my own musical choices at that point. Mm-hmm. What's interesting at this time, too, is you started, I don't know if you necessarily were playing the banjo for real, but yeah, you had a banjo. <laughs> yeah. And was this also drums or was that just more of a, the idea of it? I, I knew at age four I wanted to play drums. But again, I was in an, a religious environment where there was music you were allowed to listen to, music you weren't allowed to listen to. And my dad actually believed that if you listened to the wrong music, now let's get into it. So here's another layer of the, of the Christian music evolution, that whole era of song and, and art. There are people who believe that any created work carries with it the spirit of the person who created it. Yeah. And so this was an idea in religious music spaces that was really influential in my church and in my family. The idea was that a song created by Gene Simmons of Kiss would be inherently evil because Gene Simmons of Kiss was inherently evil himself, right? This idea would be applied more to like bands like Led Zeppelin or Judas Priest or anybody who was kind of counterculture and intentionally antagonizing parents, right? So, but this idea that music was either sacred or secular, this was a really, really strong idea. And so it was okay in my family to listen to a band, a guy like Keith Green, who had a killer groove, and that was okay. But if you were to play that same rhythm in music by somebody who did not profess to be a Christian, that was evil. Yeah. And it was create, you know, related to this idea that music was either sacred or secular, which I think is a horrible way of dividing what art is. Yeah. But it meant I was only allowed to listen to this certain stuff. And the idea was that if I, if I played drums, that would lead me down a road of probably dancing and premarital sex and all sorts of other stuff that was frowned on. So I wasn't allowed to play drums because my dad couldn't wrap his head around how that might be okay. I was given a banjo when I was six by an uncle. And what attracted me about the banjo was, I mean, it's the banjo. You can't, if you listen to banjo, you can't not go. I mean, okay, you can go. That's really obnoxious. But especially if you listen to Bela Fleck or anybody else who is a master of this instrument, Steve Martin, you listen to people who are masters of this instrument and you go, okay, that takes some talent. And that really did grab me as a little kid too, because the other music that was okay for us to listen to was anything on NPR. And so my entire childhood, Saturday night, we were listening to A Prairie Home Companion. And there's a lot of banjo on A Prairie Home Companion. So I had this banjo. I never, you know, got really good at it. What partly attracted me to the banjo was that the head of the banjo is a drum head. And so I would actually like hit on the head of the banjo with sticks and stuff. (laughs) 
Um, and I did take some banjo lessons at one point, but I, I never really got proficient. I, I do like Bela Fleck, but to, at any rate, I really wanted to play drums. And after I was able to make my own musical choices in terms of what I would buy and listen to, I got closer and closer to then getting to play the kind of music I wanted to. And once I got, you know, junior high, high school, that's when some opportunities opened up for me to actually start to play drums. You know, you're, you're choosing what you're going to do, you know, you can do choir or band or whatever else. Those opportunities open up to you as you get into older years. But I started playing drums when I was 15 and that then started to change what I wanted to listen to in order to emulate and the kind of drumming I wanted to be able to do that then started to really influence the music I listened to at the same time. Well, it's kind of a good, I think, segue because you were maybe not in some ways you were intently listening to alternative yeah. music, yeah. but you were also being guided to that, whether by the radio or friends. Yeah. Talk about what those alternative acts were and then what was so appealing? Like what was for you? Yeah. So the, the next, the next band that I really got into in this particular song is by a band called the choir. I came across it because I was at a church youth group event and somebody threw a cassette out in the crowd and it was a mixtape. And this band's song clouds just grabbed me because I was starting to play drums at the time and just the drum rhythm on this, the rhythm, the pattern on the toms, I was like, how are they doing that? <laughs> it's not complicated. Now you listen to it and you're like, oh, it's just solid. But I wanted more music by this band because it just grabbed me. So I went into the local bookstore and went to the kid who was working in the back in the you know, music section. And I said, hey, I just got this tape. There's this band called The Choir. There's this song. It's called Clouds. Do you have anything else by this band? And he looked at me and he said, that's one of my favorite bands. Here, they just released their new album. It's this, you know, it's this one right here. And uh, that guy's name is Chad Mager. And he and I became best friends from that point on. We connected on music, but particularly on this band called The Choir. And then as I was learning to play drums, this is the song I would, I would, stick this in the uh in the knockout in the iowa the the brand iowa a i w a it was like some you know cheap sony knockoff boom box but my family had one of these and i would stick this tape in and crank it to 11 and learn the drum part and uh, and i learned to play drums to this song and doom teka doom teka doom I mean, it's just really simple rhythmic thing, but it got in my bones. And there's the significance of feeling the music of this, but also the relationships that came out of it. Yeah. You know, Chad and I are best friends right. to this day, and he was my best man at my wedding. And That's so know. cool. Yeah. You had a, an experience. I don't know if you were still in high school, but mm-hmm. you went to a uh, music festival yeah that really was pivotal to be a part of yeah music you know was everything in my life at this point and i was there was a radio station near where we lived and had a friend at this radio station who got me a press pass and drove me to central illinois to a music festival 
and cornerstone? it was cornerstone music festival yeah this the first music festival i went to was called cornerstone music festival and it was 1992 and so this band the choir was there and there were so many other bands i was listening to at the time who were there and i had been told i needed to hear this artist named mark hurd and so as i was looking at the music festival lineup his was one of the last shows and i had gone to some other show that was really captivating this band called the violet burning it's the first place i'd ever seen moving lights and so i was completely captivated by the atmosphere around live music at that point i hadn't experienced a ton of that yet but i came out of this show by the violet burning and i went to this other side stage and the it was a a guy named pierce pettis and a guy named mark hurd who were playing this show and i caught the last song and mark hurd and pierce pettis left the stage and a little bit later, Pierce Pettis comes back out and he says, is there a doctor in the house? And could somebody please call an ambulance? And I don't remember much else of that, but I stuck around. Now, I was waiting for the encore. I really wanted to hear this guy, Mark Hurd. And how the night ended for me was I saw Mark Hurd loaded into the back of an ambulance. And, you know, they drove away and he died a couple weeks later. He'd had a heart attack. And so I missed his show. Mm -hmm. But the reason he'd been he'd been referred as somebody to listen to, he was working with the guys in REM at the time. He's just a phenomenal songwriter. And if you go back and listen to this particular track, Satellite Sky, you'll hear his lyricism and how tight his instrumentation was. He was kind of a, a music industry darling. He wasn't young at the time but very, very well respected. And and to this day, Pierce Pettis, who shared the stage with him that night, Pierce never plays a show without playing one of Mark Hurd's songs. And there are other guys I know who've done that too. In fact, you know, you and I both live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and a friend of ours, Ralston Bowles, also knew Mark and was really influenced by his music. And every chance he gets, he'll play a song by Mark Hurd. Mark Hurd is one of those musicians who his stuff stands a test of time. If he were still alive today, we would be referring to him in the same breath as Leonard Cohen and Bruce Coburn and other great, great singer-songwriters. Yeah. And this song in particular, man, it's got a groove. It's mm. just, ugh, is catches that, me every time. I mean, I'm, I'm sensing a, a similarity. Like, is that having a groove pivotal for you? to luring you in <clears throat> yeah you know music either catches you in a, a moment of memory and like and you attach to it because of something else that was going on at the time yeah like that's all layered in there but i had a lot of energy as a kid i <laughs> still probably have a lot of energy right now but especially as somebody who was wanting to play music and who was playing drums primarily I was attracted to, does this make me move? Does this make me feel something? You know, there wasn't, nobody was listening to what we would consider ambient music at that point yet. I mean, Brian Eno had yeah. put out music for airports already, but I, w I hadn't come across that at any point. And, you know, in later life, that kind of stuff has really grabbed me. There's certain classical music, you know, that I think you learn to appreciate 
as you get older if you weren't raised appreciating that. But in the era of like, I'm young and restless and trying to figure out what to do with my life, definitely gravitated toward music that was like, does this make me feel something? Not just emotionally, but in my body. Yeah. And so, yeah, all these all these songs that I think of from that era of my life are definitely like, yeah, this made me feel something. And I still feel something today when I even think about it. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Post high school, you're promoting shows. You even were on tours. Yeah. I, I had a, I had a musical performing life at 17, 18, 19. It's using the word loosely to say I was in a band there were six of us and we all had instruments and we played them. We did the best we could to really enjoy what we were doing. And sometimes it sounded really, really, really good. But the whole purpose of this band was it was put together as a band that went around to churches and did, you know, what I would call supplemental youth ministry. Like you're going to small churches all over and really helping the volunteer youth ministers. A lot of that, you know, a lot of churches at that point, they didn't have paid youth pastors. Right. And it was helping volunteer youth ministers, moms and dads, pull together something cool for the kids in their church. So I was working with an organization called Lutheran Youth Encounter. Amazing, amazing, amazing people. And this group of people, they started in the late 60s. They they would put together between six and 10 bands every year, like with, with psychological inventories to match people upright. And they would throw six or seven people in the back of a Ford, you know, conversion van, hauling, yeah. hauling a trailer with some sound equipment. And you would go and you'd play little churches all over the place all week long. So I did this at age 18, 19. Absolutely best best experience I could have possibly done at that point in my right, life. Yeah. And it was a, it was blowing the doors off of my musical experience as well. Cause I had grown up in a really conservative approach to what music was okay and wasn't okay. But all the people I was now in this band with, they were coming from all sorts of other experiences and they introduced me to REM and Depeche Mode and Erasure and you know, all sorts of stuff, which was incredible. But coming out of a year of performing every night and getting familiar with events and how to run a soundboard and how to set up a system and tear it down quick and that kind of stuff. As I then got into college, that became something I continued to do. I worked for the audiovisual department on my campus and, you know, worked worked whatever shows were, were going on. And decided to promote shows for myself on campus as well. So I would hire a, a band mm-hmm. coming through and try and get people to pay three, four bucks. And we'd raise a little bit of money for a local, yeah. local shelter or something like that. Any bands <clears throat> that we would know of? Well, the only band that I promoted at that point who kind of went anywhere from that point was a band called Sixpence on the Richer. And in November of 1995, I got to promote a show for them. They had a song you might recognize called Kiss Me that came out like a year and a half after that. So at the point at which I helped promote this show, they were just a really, really good band who some friends and I knew of. And in fact, they were so popular that when we found out we could get them for 750 bucks for the night, I actually, I, I bought a new blank journal and I went to 
all my friends and family and said, hey, we're bringing this band Six Best on the Richer to town. I know that if you wanted to go see them, you'd probably pay 20 bucks to see them somewhere, right? And my friends were like, yeah, I'd pay 20 bucks. I was like, good, you give me 20 bucks. And I go to the next person and be like, would you pay 10 bucks to see Six Pence on the Richer? Yeah, I think I heard of them. Yeah, I'd pay 10 bucks. Okay, give me your 10 bucks. And I did that all the way down the line. And so I raised the money with some people paying 10, 20, 30 bucks and some people paying three, four bucks. Yeah. It was this introduction to kind of the economy and the economics of, of show production. I paid a local band 300 bucks for their sound and lights for the night. It was a great experience. Nice. So, yeah. You mentioned a lot of primarily 80s, like English mm-hmm. alternative bands like Depeche Mode and The Cure. Yeah. What was it like to just engage yourself into that type of music? Well, the the music I first felt attracted to when I could choose my own music was that kind of new wave. I mean, the yeah. band, The Choir, is a pretty new wave band. There's also a band called The 77s that was new wave 80s. In fact, they had an album on Island Records, I believe, that came out the same time that Joshua Tree came out. And it's like the PR for these two bands, like kind of went different directions in one band we know of today as U2 and the other band, the 77s, most people have never heard of. Right. But if you listen to their stuff, it's similar in terms of the creative drive around it and the musicality of the players. But there, I mean, I was definitely attracted to that kind of new wave. I wasn't listening to punk. I think punk is a reaction against something. And I didn't have that kind of a reaction against yet. I wasn't listening to stuff that was, real metally or screechy. Yeah. I mean, I was hearing that stuff around me, but I wasn't attracted to distorted guitars yet. It was the jangly stuff. So it was, you know, it was a, it was a really prominent baseline. You know, I've, I've never become a huge erasure or Depeche Mode fan or anything, but, but I could definitely appreciate what was going on with those bands. And it felt pretty much in line with the stuff that I was also naturally interested in and hearing in the music I was quote unquote allowed to listen to at the same time. Right. So you mentioned you two and you've actually seen them live. Yeah. Many times yeah. now. How, do you know how many times? I know I saw the Joshua tree show three times, soldier field, Detroit and Cleveland. Okay. I saw all three of those with different sets of friends. Yeah. But I also saw the 360 tour Soldier Field and Lansing and Lansing. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. 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 Those were phenomenal. Yeah. What is it about you two for you that you enjoy so much that you've wanted to see them so many times and still listen to their Uh music? Yeah. You know, again, in the era that I grew up in pre iPod, pre MP3, you got music by subscribing to the Capital BMG catalog. And by, you know, ordering X number of CDs or tapes for a penny, you know, you're on the subscription and then you yeah. cancel it. Joshua Tree was in the first set of discs that I ever bought through Capital BMG. And if I were going on a road trip in the early 90s, Joshua Tree was one of the 10 discs in my CD case. And that was going to get high rotation all the way through. You know, there's an expansiveness to their music. That is so attractive still today. There's a clarity to the lyricism. 
that speaks to things that feel like they have depth to them. Yeah, there's just, there's just an approach to songwriting that was unique in its time. And regardless of what people think, I mean, there are a lot of people who think U2 is just an overblown band. Well, when you do it as long as they have, you kind of earn the right to be an overblown band, but especially that early stuff, it was unique in its space, which is why it stands the test of time. It was unique in its space without being kitschy. It was such good songwriting, such good approach, even to instrumentation. That's why it has continued to really keep me hooked. What's so fascinating about them is those four have stuck together. Yeah. For, since 1976. Yeah. And so have the Rolling Stones, but the Rolling Stones are just a blues band. Well, and you know, unfortunately, they've had people pass away yeah. during that time too yeah. and leave the band and, and such. Yeah. But I mean, it's just mind blowing that it's you, those same four it every is, time. It, it is, but you also have to look at who was alongside him from a production standpoint today. Yeah. And, and if you're going to listen to U2, and appreciate how that band stands the test of time, you will also get the exact same experience from Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno. Absolutely. Steve Lillywhite. Too. Steve Lillywhite. Like the, it was, there were multiple people around that outfit who were doing phenomenally creative work then and are doing phenomenally creative work today. If you have not listened to the band Black Dub by Daniel Lanois, then you're missing something in your life. I decided at one point, and and I, in my college years, I did a lot of long road trips, most of them job oriented, drove coast to coast a couple different times. I decided, I don't know why I got this idea, but I just, I just decided like, Hey, like if I'm, if I'm going to be who I really am, then to be the quintessential college student, here's what I want. I want a slippery rock college t-shirt and I want a U2 war poster. And so one summer in my travels, I bought a Slippery Rock t-shirt at Slippery Rock College in Pennsylvania, and I bought a U2 war poster at the Virgin Records store in Los Angeles. Those two things made me feel like I had arrived as a college student. <laughs> you mentioned lyrics yeah. with U2. Expound on what you mean by those lyrics being so impactful. Hmm. Cause it's not, cause now you're, you're not talking about a groove or a sound. You're even delving into the lyrics now. Yeah. And, and the lyrics have always been really important to me because they connected with, you know, the experiences I was having at different times, but you're right. There's a lot of stuff I've listened to where it is the groove that catches me. And in fact, I'll even notice this, you know, in my own kids, my kids can name the title of a song. I don't remember the titles of songs. <laughs> I don't remember the lyrics of a lot of songs. I can kind of sing along with them as I listen to them. But what U2 was doing for me when I began listening to them was they were using metaphor. It was connected to the music that had been, you know, okay for me to listen to. They were, they're coming from a religious background, a religious space and the use of religious metaphor to say some things that are really important about culture and politics. And they're also coming, you know, from, from the aisles. They're not coming from 
Western fundamentalist evangelicalism in America. They're coming from a more deeply rooted experience of the way that religion has impacted politics in Ireland. Right. That experience of their own that they were wrestling with and trying to, to find their way past and expressing things out of, there's, there's something much more genuine in what they were kind of reaching for than a lot of similarly religiously influenced lyrics coming out of America at the time. Right. And that's why they stood out and continue to you listen so cool. to the old stuff. So I think, you know, it's, I do realize that this entire podcast series is just an opportunity for you to talk about you too. Like, that is not the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I will take advantage of it. Yeah, but good. Hey, take it where I, you can I, get it. I've talked to plenty of people who have no interest in you too. Oh man. So, well, I, I, yeah, I will say the song October makes it high on my top 10 songs list because that piano. Um, Oh, there's just so much. And, and I will say one of my life goals is to be able to personally recreate the Joshua Tree album by myself in one show. What do you mean by recreating? Like you would make the, the music yourself? Or... Yeah. I, if, if I, one of, one of my life goals, just from like a personal creative expression, I want to do this standpoint. I would love to play the Joshua Tree album by myself with one instrument per song and just perform it front to back yeah. by myself, moving around the stage on different instruments and exploring how powerful each one of those songs is on their own. And there's the, the instrumentation that goes along with each of the songs on that album has such uniqueness to it. You can find something that would carry each one of those songs, even if it's only one instrument all the way throughout. Yeah. There are distinctive things in each one of those tracks that you go, I mean, you, you think about the drum track on Bullet Blue Sky. Yeah. With or without you bass. Exactly. There are, there like, are just so many ways that you can go. It's, and so it's different for everybody. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe yep. for yep. Bullet Blue Sky, yep. you'd be thinking of that guitar. Yeah harmonica lines where yeah. like you just rip a harmonica line out. So th there's a personal goal there. Yeah. Me. I, I, I'm reminded now of what I was going to say <laughs> is that what's interesting about you too, that you are kind of talking about in the midst of all the other music that was going yeah. on is yeah. it was so different mm -hmm. from what was popular. Yeah. And lyrically different too. Lyrically different. Yeah. Uh, during, I mean, your eighties. Yeah. It's Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Hair metal. Yeah. Yeah. Totally stood out. I mean, just even <clears> like <throat> the Joshua Tree. Yeah. That Americana yeah. kind of feel. Who else is doing that? Nobody. Nobody. Well, actually, a band called the 77s, but you've never <laughs> heard of them. <laughs> um, I will say the song October, after my oldest son was born, we put that he was born in September and we put that on a mix, on a mixtape. Yeah for our kid and listen to October in high rotation. And then also October is connected to the birth of all of my kids. I've got twins as well, who are now 14, but shortly after they were born, I was in the UP in October and I was out for a walk in the woods. My grandmother had died. So we were up North for her funeral and my daughter was strapped to my chest. It's October 15th. 
and I'm walking along this road right next to Lake Superior. I can see Lake Superior on my right, and my eye caught something off to my left in the woods, and I looked, and there was a wolf in the woods just watching me walk by. And it's just one of those like really cool, like autumnal moments. When I hear the song October, when I think of the word October, it's like all connected in one and they're just great memories. Yeah. That I will last with me my whole life. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Around this time, you became interested in an R&B artist called Chardé. How did that happen? Again, it was like this was music I was choosing and it spoke to me and just was in high rotation for me. But Chardet, somebody, a friend introduced me to Chardet, gave me this album with this nearly naked woman on the cover. And I was just like, oh, this is kind of my, this is my introduction to stuff that's a little more electronic, a little more processed. It's R&B, but yeah. is it really what this particular track, as it pops out, doom like it's just again it's got this groove that i was like oh i'm not making babies yet but that's baby making music <laughs> none of my kids are named after Chardet, but that particular album it was a departure for me in terms of what i was listening to i can't recall anything else in that kind of genre yeah. that i really listened to but this in particular, I was like, oh, this woman has a groove and a soul, an incredible voice. And this album will go to a desert island with me for sure. <laughs> there was also on, uh, just a continuance of alternative music during this time. Yeah. So Counting Crows, Smashing Pumpkins, mm -hmm. Blind Melon. Yeah, when I moved into the dorms, you know, as a college freshman... You know, it was Nirvana and Blind Melon and MTV was on high rotation. You know, the real world season one was just coming out. Jeez. So you would, and nobody had TVs of their own in their rooms. We were all too poor or the TVs were too big or heavy or whatever. So there was a TV lounge in every yeah. dorm and you'd go into the TV lounge and you'd watch Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd watch Beavis and Butthead and you'd watch the Simpsons and then you'd watch the real world. And if you weren't watching one of those three shows, then MTV was on full rotation the rest of the time. Yeah, so th there was lots of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Blind Melon, so many other things. I started listening to some ska at that point. Yeah. Just some some great stuff. But the Counting Crows album really pops out for me because, again, that was Mr. Jones was kind of the soundtrack of a summer for me at one point. I traveled with a buddy to East Africa spent six weeks in Kenya and two weeks in a Rwandan refugee camp. And this and, would have been right. During yeah, this the, was, this was 1994. Yeah. yeah. I, part of my, part of my history is I, I was in a Rwandan refugee camp right at the end of the Rwandan genocide in 1994. And, you know, there's so much about an experience like that, that just shapes the rest of your life. But the Counting Crows album and Mr. Jones in particular, I mean, Mr. Jones is not a wildly creative song. It's, no. it's, you know, three chords and some dumb luck, but a great voice Yeah, and a groove. Here is something, again, unique about this. We say, oh, it's just three chords and, you know, some catchy lyrics, but dig a little bit deeper and it's produced by T-Bone Burnett. Yeah. And if you're going to talk about U2 
and Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno and Steve Lillywhite. T-Bone Burnett was not involved in that musical collaboration. But if you want to talk about people who have radically influenced music in the last 30 years, T-Bone Burnett is right there. Yeah. I mean, so many things. In more recent popular culture, producer of the Civil Wars, producer of the Hunger Games soundtracks. But you go back into the 80s, you know, in between then and now, he produced that Counting Crows album. And there's a reason why that album is so freaking good. And it's T-Bone Burnett. Yeah. Did he do stuff with Lady Gaga, maybe? T-Bone I... Burnett has done stuff with absolutely everybody. I was listening to, well, I'm actually really excited. Robert Plant and Alison Krauss have a new album coming out November 19th of 2021, yeah. which is a follow-up to their phenomenally successful Grammy-winning right. album that they did with T-Bone Burnett at the helm in 2007. I, that sounds Ra- about right. Raising Sand. And again, what's unique about it is you've got these phenomenal voices who come together to do a covers album. It's all covers, but it's songs curated by T-Bone Burnett and Robert Plant. They really chose a lot of those together. One of the songs on that is by a woman named Sam Phillips, whose first performance name was Leslie Phillips. She and T-Bone Burnett were married at the time. But man, T-Bone Burnett, he is a through line to tons of great music, both from a writing and performing standpoint. And you go you go back to the 50s and 60s, and you've got T-Bone Burnett performing with Bob Dylan and all these greats, the Traveling Wilburys. You know, T-Bone Burnett was part of all of that. And he continues to have a phenomenal influence on our musical culture. So every year I yeah. collect my favorite songs from that. Yeah. year yeah. and can't let go is on it oh which so, is so good. so cool that you brought that up it's ridiculous it's a great song yeah i'm excited yeah. too about the, the new album yeah the new album it's great yeah. in the late 90s you were a part of a country radio station talk about how that came about in the late 90s as i was trying to figure out how to pay the bills as a young married human i landed a job at a country station doing news part-time horrible pay like 625 an hour but at that point record labels would still just spit albums to every station possible to see what would get picked up and at a country station when something like martin sexton came across it wasn't going to get played and the news guy could just take it home right so this there's a particular album by martin sexton and this song happy again it's just got this infectious groove but you've got this guy with a phenomenal voice the, the voice captivates you and this particular song has uh, been high rotation in my life for more than 20 years now and there's a lyric in it about sunday mornings and about the kitchen table and how it just might break this song is in high rotation every sunday morning in our house it's made our sunday music playlist enjoyable so, i'm sure yeah it's too. great yeah yeah that's so cool. Yeah. What are you currently listening to? You know, this year I decided, well, here's to back up a step. We used to be able to get a sense of who new friends were, strangers and new friends, and by asking them what they were listening to. And now, even when you ask me, what are you listening to? I have to find ways of knowing what I'm listening to. 
If you and I had met 15 years ago, I would have said, hey, Kyle, what are the five discs in your changer right now? And you would have been able to name the five discs in your changer. And that would have started a great conversation about who you are and your musical tastes and what's influenced you. Right. As playlists have come along, as artists have released singles instead of albums, how we listen to music has changed. And I've, I have actually felt kind of musically lost for the last several years because of that, because there isn't this approach to knowing something's coming out and waiting for it having the experience of standing in line for it or waiting at the mailbox for it and then getting it and opening it and then built on the anticipation of what was coming, devouring it and then giving it a second listen and then giving a third listen and forming an opinion about it. That's how we used to engage music. And now the marketing of music is so much about the drip of it that the way we listen to it has changed. So this is a struggle for me actually. And this year, beginning of 2021, I decided I am going to choose some music to be in high rotation for the year, specifically so that I could kind of feel like I had, you know, a groove in my year. Mm -hmm. I will say Brandy Carlisle makes it in high rotation in the last year. Is it because of the new album? It's not just because of the new album. Prior stuff, I mean, her song, The Story, you know, first heard that in 2007. I remember when I heard the story and I also heard Crazy by Niles Barkley. Those two are the soundtrack of like a particular year in my life in 2007. But Brandy just has this incredible voice, but she also has a, an incredible way of interpreting her stories and telling her stories. Right. If you haven't listened to, and I say listen to her book, it's like an autobiography. Yeah, it's an autobiography, and you got to listen to it because she plays songs oh, acoustic all throughout the book as cool. she narrates it. It's a phenomenal experience. Yeah. And that particular story, a lot of what we've talked about, she talks about as well because of a conservative religious upbringing of hers. Right. And she, I'll say this, Brandy Carlisle, if I ever fell out of love with Jesus, I fell back in love with Jesus listening to Brandy Carlisle's album. I mean, her book, Brandy Carlisle, I'd say she got me saved all over again, if if that's (laughs) language we're talking. She is high rotation. There's a couple of things that uh, are high rotation right now. You're probably not running into copyright issues too much here. I'm actually going to play a little bit of this and tell you what this is. This is some electronic music. The artist is Blavatsky. And this is actually part of the soundtrack to the Van Gogh experiential exhibit that is at museums and like oh. installation places all over the U.S. right now. It's, you know, some some electronic music that really captured me. I've listened to a lot of ambient in the last couple of years. And this particular album, Life Cycle, is the EP. Nice. Yeah. So it's got that groove for me. It's you. got that groove for me. <laughs> Blavatsky, you can look that up. The other one that would go with this is a composer named Luca Longobardi. And this album is actually called, this EP is actually called Vincent. And you can kind of hear it. I'll get into this little track right here, which is a cello suite. That's part of the Vincent exhibit. All right, cello suite number one in G major. But the way it's interpreted here is great. 
So I tend to listen to a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I would say in popular music, that's what I've been listening to lately. It does tend to be more ambient, but I, I've had to try to choose music to listen to. It hasn't chosen me as much. Uh, I used to kind of wait for music to pick me. Like it, you'd hear it and it would grab you and you'd be like, oh, it just got me. Yeah. It doesn't happen as much anymore. Do you feel like the immediacy of music is part to blame? Like the, the, oh, 100%. the accessibility. Absolutely. And the, I can, yeah. I'm, I can I'm, look up that can't let go song in five seconds. Yep. And then play it. Yep. And it, it does. I mean, there's, I'm not going to complain about the access we have to music, but it makes it harder for a musician for sure. Yeah. And, and there's six, one half dozen other. There are pros and cons, but yeah, I do lament the time when I could just really get into something because also now too, if I choose to listen to an album and I don't like it on the first or second listen, I don't also feel the need to stay committed to it because I just paid $18.99 for it. I've got this album by Need to Breathe that I downloaded earlier this year. I don't like it. I don't like it. Now, is it phenomenal? Probably. Would I really like it if I had paid 20 bucks for it and then Invested listened to it? it in, if I had brought myself to it instead of just expecting it to come to me? Yeah, I would probably love that album but I haven't been able to invest enough into it for it to kind of become the soundtrack of a season of listening. Yeah. And that's what music does for us. Whether we really love it or whether it's great music or not, it becomes the soundtrack of our lives in certain ways, sometimes by happenstance. And then it's connected to the memories of that season. And then we end up going, Oh, I love that. When really what we love is the memory of what was going on in our life at that time. True. Yeah. So Music performs those different functions. Yeah. You mentioned a couple times about your upbringing yeah. and your faith. How have you, with music, how have you had to reconcile your faith in terms of how that affects you today? Yeah, I got over that pretty fast. <laughs> I did because I, you know, I was so... Well, it comes back to something I mentioned earlier around the belief that people had that if a piece of art was created by a person, that the soul or the spirit of whatever was going on in that person's life was like connected to their piece of art. I got over that pretty quickly as I, you know, grew up in in my late teens, early twenties, just went, Oh, I don't think that's the way creativity works. In fact, I would say that if you're somebody who's a person who was raised in especially Judeo-Christian faith, if you read the first lines of the book of Genesis, here's how Genesis starts. In the beginning, God created. That first sentence says that the deity, the all-powerful, the whatever ground of all being, the first thing that that being or entity did was create. And so whoever was writing that down and trying to capture their idea of how everything began, they began by saying, when it all started, omnipotent deity made something. Yeah. And the next line gets into, and then the deity made humanity in its image. So the first thing that these writers say is that 
if there's a God, God is creative. And the second thing is that God created humanity to be creative also. That's the beginning is creation happening and then creativity continuing. So the idea there for me is that creativity is inherently good and can never be bad. Now, can I use my energy to do something negative or destructive, hateful or evil? Yes, but that's the outcome of what I do. It's not, especially in a creative work, it's not the nature of creativity. In fact, to destroy is not creative, it's destructive. But when you're creating something, any music, any art, anything, the nature of it is creativity. It is good. It's generative. It's, it's bringing something new into the world. Yeah, I, I kind of got over the idea that there was good music and bad music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, are there lyrics that might say something negative or destructive? Yeah, like there's music I don't listen to because it makes me feel shitty, right? There are, there's music I say to my kids, I want you to listen to that because it, when you listen to it, you, you've got a bad attitude later. I don't think like there's a spirit attached to that music that's now like coming out as a bad attitude in you. Right. I know that the way our brains work is that if we consume negative content, if, if we tell ourselves we are horrible people, we'll act like horrible people. Right. So what I choose to do with music is one thing, but, but it doesn't trouble me that sometimes music is really negative and angsty. This is some, yeah. so sometimes you need negative and angsty, like yeah, to oh. engage a certain feeling or emotion. Right. And it it's healthy. You, yeah. There are times when you need to lament and mourn and grieve. Yeah. And you need to create the, yeah. the system. There are like, you need to rage against the machine sometimes yeah. and that's necessary. And it's actually how cultures change Yeah, for the better. Right. What is it about music that makes us enjoy it? Why do we listen to music? Well, I think it's, I think it comes back to what we were just saying about creativity, that then to be human is to have the potential to create something new all the time. We are creating something new every day, all day long. Everything we do has the potential to make something new. And so when we hear somebody else's new thing, I think there's something in us that inherently wants to celebrate that. And we are attracted to people's new creations. So when I hear the music somebody else has made, it's not something I made. Yeah. There's something magical about that. And we've got ears on our head, like, and they work in stereo. And, and we've also got, you know, voices that make a bunch of different tones. And like, there's just like our options for creating something new are built into our bodies, right? I mean, so there's this, for me, it comes back honestly to like my first musical memory, which was four guys on a stage using their voices, you know? The harmonies. The harmony of four voices together and nothing else. Man, you can do a lot with that. And it makes you feel alive. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, Nate, thanks again for making this happen. Yeah, thanks for pulling the conversation together yeah
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack with Kyle Lichty. Each person interviewed has created a playlist of the very songs that have impacted their life. If you are interested in listening to their playlist, you can head straight to our website at soundtrack.fireside.fm. Click on Soundtrack Playlist and it will take you straight to their playlist on Spotify. If you like the podcast and want to know more, check out our Instagram at Soundtrack Podcast or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Join us next time on Soundtrack.